This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for spending some time listening to this podcast. I hope it's a good experience for you and that it adds a little something extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. This episode was actually recorded for a podcast that I was doing about two years ago called My Secular Sobriety, and this conversation with Gabe Rosales was probably one of my favorite episodes from that podcast. I'm no longer doing that podcast. I stopped it fairly quickly because I found it was difficult to do two podcasts at the same time, and Beyond Belief Sobriety pretty much covers the same kind of material. But before I introduce that episode, I would like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery, that you can find at Soberlink.com slash BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink, and you'll receive $50 off their device. Gabe Rosales is a professional musician and a sobriety and criminal justice advocate from San Juan Capistrano, California. He got sober in 2007 after serving time in prison for crimes committed during the time he was actively drinking and drugging. That experience inspired him to earn a degree in criminal justice with a goal to help reform the system and make the world a better place. And now, episode 260, Gabe Rosales. So Gabe is a professional musician, a sobriety advocate, international human rights activist, a criminal justice and drug policy reformist from San Juan Capistrano, California. He is predominantly known as a bass bassist, rapper, guitarist, singer, and producer. He's worked in many genres of music, such as rock, jazz, pop, drum, and bass, fusion, funk, hip-hop, Latin music, and death metal. His album, and I just discovered this album today, I bought it, and I love it, and it came in just the right time in this uh, period of uh, (laughs) depressing world. (laughs) Anyway, his album, Vital Nonsense, just sounds beautiful. I'm just kind of getting into it. That was released in February of 2009. Anyway, he um, has played with a variety of artists. Uh, He is active in... Uh, activism, uh, humanitarian char- uh, charities, arts, corrections, criminology, you name it. Gabe, how are you? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Uh, like I said, I, I, I don't know if I've ever um, 
read a more interesting bio of anybody that I've ever talked to on a podcast before. And I don't even know where to begin other than maybe if you could, the, the, the way I always start with a guest is maybe if you could share a little bit of your story about how you got to where you are today. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you said, there's been, it's kind of crazy. It's just, you know, I think I've lived in a couple of different extremes and every time, you know, it feels like, um, you know, just uh, different lives over the decades, you know what I mean? Because uh, just drastically different change, different things. Uh, I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm full-blooded Mexican. Uh, my parents met in Mexico City, and my mom and my dad are I mean, both musicians, not professionally, but uh, I, you know, I grew up hearing music in my house all the time from them playing like old uh, James Taylor, you know, and uh, the, the 70s, like, folk stuff, you know. And um, and my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. Can you hear me okay? Does that Fine, mean? yeah, you're perfect. Um. Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. Uh, I grew up in an, like an alcoholic household as well. My dad, you know, had issues with drinking and it progressively got worse, you know. But I think um, that was my first real experience with anybody that was intoxicated was, um, you know, growing up with my dad and pick, like literally picking him up off the floor when I was probably about 10, once my parents got divorced, uh, when he was supposed to be responsible for me, you know. And so, <clears throat> you know, in hindsight, looking back on everything that I experienced and understanding you know, that develop, developmental period of my life and, and seeing uh, when you're picking your dad up off the ground and he's an alcoholic and, um, it, and, and he's supposed to be in charge of you, then it's almost like the foundation is kind of ripped out from underneath you, you know? Right. And you feel like, um, and, I, and I realize now that at that moment is when I, I thought rules didn't apply to me because I was like the adult in the situation. You know what I mean? Like, um, there, there wasn't anybody that I could look up to in terms of, I mean, my dad was a hard worker and he loved, you know, he loved me very much. And so I don't ever want to take that away. I did learn a lot of positive things from him, but I also, um, I felt like I needed to be in charge more than anybody. So that kind of like progressed as I got older. So, um, I moved with my mom once my parents were divorced to Santa Cruz, Northern California. And then, uh, her and I were butting heads and she kicked me out of the house when I was 14 years old. So I moved back to my dad's really digging, dug in my musical career there. And, um, all through high school, I was playing with like five different bands, literally Monday and Tuesday, one band, another band, Wednesday and Thursday, another band, Friday and Saturday, like clockwork, just playing all the time, different styles of music. And, uh, so by the time I graduated high school, I, um, I had a producer that was helping produce our band and that kind of got me my, my foot in the door in terms of like, uh, being a professional musician. But you know, like my, when my mom kicked me out of the house to move back with my father, there was, the, you know, there was no rules and he was still drinking. So, uh, my substance abuse, my alcoholism continued and it progressed. Like I remember, you know, being a freshman in high school and, um, I used to drink, you know, like a little fifth of whiskey, uh, on a Friday and that was it, you know, that would pretty, pretty much be it. And that was freshman year. By the time I was a junior in high school, um, I couldn't remember a day of the week that I wasn't drunk. Like I was drinking every single day. Like I was like, okay, I'd have to go back and remember, oh yeah, Wednesday I didn't get drunk. So, um, it progressively got pretty bad, you know, and I never, uh, I never drank beer. I never drank in any kind of, um, you know, small, uh, reasonable amount, you know, wasn't responsible ever with it. The first time I ever got drunk was like a big cup of whiskey. So, um, from that point on, that was my starting point, you know, and then, and so progressively got worse. So then once I got into like, you know, professional music world and going on tour and, um, that kind of exacerbated the situation because, you know, being on tour is like one of those things where, you know, and I was on a, it was a national act and I was touring around the United States and you, you know, you play a venue, you do whatever you want for the time that you're there and then you roll into a bus 
and they, you know, drive you to the next state and you fall out, you do the exact same thing again. You can like demolish the venue that you're playing at. You can be, you can do whatever you want really. And, um, and you know, I mean, me living in this rock star fantasy life, like I, I completely took advantage of that. I turned 21 on the road. Oh in my gosh. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. I wasn't even allowed into the clubs the first half of the tour, the first leg <laughs> of the tour. So yeah, St. Louis, Missouri, I turned 21. Oh, and, that explains uh, it, St. Louis. <laughs> man, it was crazy. That place, we were, like, playing by some train tracks, and there was bars there that were open till like, you know, 6 to 8 in the morning or something like that. It was, it was crazy. Um, very destructive. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, by the time I came back off that tour, it was like, uh, you know, my, and I, I was still living in that same kind of lifestyle, destroying venues, being a scene at restaurants. You know, my friends were kind of like, you know, you got to do something because – we have to see these people the next day. You know what I mean? You can't live like this. And so one of my friends had just came back from this Vipassana meditation retreat and um, he, it had changed his life. And so I, you know, I was raised Christian and Catholic and, uh, but I pretty much was turned off from it at a pretty early age just because, you know, I mean, like really, if you just, just asking questions and it didn't make sense in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, even just taking the song, Jesus loves me this, I know for the Bible tells me. So I remember thinking as a kid, like, so you believe anything a book tells you? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? like, <laughs> I was like, okay, he, this guy loves me because this book says it. And just, I really quite thinking, you know? Um, and so I kind of got pulled towards Eastern philosophies more because that made the most sense to me. I went to this, you know, 10 day meditation retreat and it completely changed my perception on, on existence um, and impermanence. And for me, like it's, it's been my basically saving grace through a lot of things. And because in the Vipassana meditation specifically, is, is not like really religious based. It's based off of like a self-reflection and self-awareness. And to me, the universal truth for everything is just impermanence. Like we know for sure that everything is going to come and go, including ourselves. And so to me, that's like the thing that I, I feel is, has been um, my, my truth. You know what I mean? And, um, and so after meditation school, things were good. And then it, it, it you know, like my uh, drugs came back into my life. And as the gigs got better, the drugs also got harder. You know, I started playing with Jennifer Lopez um, and because uh, uh, the musical director I was working with started getting these musical directing gigs. And I was, um, I was brought into a bunch of like pretty high profile acts touring Europe in a private plane and stuff like that. And that was amazing. And then, uh, but then I also started using, you know, cocaine and getting into harder drugs and just doing really stupid shit, you know, and being, you know, uh, being a scumbag. Oh, excuse me. I'm not supposed to cuss. No, you can cuss. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, and so... Um, Gabe, yeah, can I ask out. a quick question? Yeah, of course. Hey, when people were telling you, hey, man, you got to straighten out, was anybody saying like, hey, you need to quit drinking and drugging? Or was it more like, you got something you need to take care of. Chill out. Go check out this, you know. Um, did anybody ever question you about your use? Or was it more like, you got to get some stuff straightened out? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was that guy with between my friends that drank more than everybody, you know, that, that and that's what I was kind of known for. Like, they knew I would fill a big mug full of vodka or you know, whatever. And they just drink the entire thing, like to start the night off, you know? So like people already knew that I had an issue, but, um, very few people really talked to me about that, you know? And, and cause I felt, you know, I felt like I had it out of control. And then same time, if I was playing high profile gigs, you know, like I couldn't be that messed up, you know what I mean? Like high functioning alcoholic or, right. um, and I even missed, you know, I almost missed a plane, uh, uh, traveling from one country to the next in Europe because I'm, I, you know, I was so hungover. Right. I almost, almost missed the plane. And, um, but yeah, I did, you know, I mean, people would say stuff to me, but it wasn't, you know, I felt like I was, you know, a rock star. I was above, above everything. 
Right. Um, Sorry to interrupt there. No, no, no. So yeah, for sure. Like any, anytime, anything. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, by the time 2004 rolled around, I ended up getting a DUI, you know, I blew up like a 0.25, three times the legal amount. I had to do a long uh, DUI. Um, and that was in 2004. So the laws weren't even half as punitive as they are now. Oh, man. I, see, I had my, I got mine in the eighties and my last was in 1988. And so at that time, I think the most I was looking at after three of them was like six months in jail. Now you go to prison. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's guys that I teach in prison and they were, you know, they were there because of, you know, accidents they got in while they're drinking third or fourth DUI for sure. Um, and even in California, I know it was stricter than it was most other places, even at that time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a trip. And that was, uh, so that was 2004. And then by 2007, um, another drunken, you know, just chaotic night ended up getting, uh, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and domestic battery with a corporal injury. And, uh, and uh, I, this is my first real run-in with the criminal justice system. You know, I was lucky enough to get a lawyer who pulled for me, you know, and with, you know, charges like that, you generally would serve a couple of years at least. And, uh, but I ended up getting reduced to months. And, um, and so, you know, I had to turn myself in went to jail for a while, a couple months. And, um, and then, you know, that's where I kind of saw the subculture of jail life and, and uh, our, you know, a carceral institution and like got acclimated to it, was asked to even like, have a position in the gang that I was running in. And then, um, and then riot started the last, like probably month I was there. Um, and that was eye opening, eye opening experience too, because, you know, like you have, you know, being associated with a certain demographic of people like has its privileges, but when, you know, when the shit hits the fan, like they expect you to step up, you know, that's just part of the deal. So, um, I was expecting to get more time because we were supposed to start rioting with another gang and, um, luckily we went on lockdown, you know, I got, you know, got deputies would come in and pepper, pepper spray us just for fun, just cause they thought it was funny. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I made it through, you know, fine, unscathed and just learned a lot. And, um, got, that was when I got sober in 2007, April 30th and, uh, released a solo album once I got out, uh, based off of like my experiences, sobriety, jail, death, you know, religion. Um, and then, uh, and that was like in 2009, I went back to school in 2010, got a degree in criminology. Um, I started working towards a substance abuse counseling certification in between in the summers in between the criminology degree. And so, uh, and then I got smart recovery certified in 2018. And, um, around that time, 2018, I'm almost done here. So <laughs> you're cool. <laughs> um, by 2018, I got, ended up getting to law school and started working for this nonprofit where we teach a rehabilitative songwriting class, uh, in prison which is jail guitar doors. Uh, amazing, amazing nonprofit. And I had just graduated, you know, with a criminology degree, being a professional musician, being sober. And I was like, somebody tagged me in an Instagram post. And I was like, this is perfect. Like this is exactly a nice, you know, combination of things that I've been working on my whole life or up to this point. And um, I, you know, emailed the corporate office. They asked me when I could start. And I immediately started at a prison in San Diego, California and um, I started law school in 2018 and ended up withdrawing from law school because um, I was much more interested in policy changes in California. But I mean, uh, you know, this whole time of sobriety from 2007, uh, I got to work with the U.S. State Department on cultural exchanges, trying to get kids to stop uh, joining terrorist organizations, you know, in North Africa and Tunisia. I uh, worked on a documentary um, and uh, oh, I went to Uganda to work with, uh, you know, a nonprofit to get a clean water system and 
a, a solar panels on this hospital that serves like 250,000 people. And so, I mean, it's just kind of bouncing around all over the yeah. place. So of, of all of all of that that you do, of all, all the advocacy that you do, what is it that you're most passionate about? Is it the criminal justice reform? Right now, yeah. I mean, you know, I've seriously, my life has been like all over the place. So um, I kind of like whatever's in front of me, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'll do this for a while. And I'll, I'll do this for a while, you know, and um, it's kind of been like that. So right now the criminal justice reform stuff is, is the biggest because that's, oh, I got, when I withdrew from law school, I got into this PhD program. So I'm going to be researching policy changes in California. Okay. So what needs to change? Tell, can you talk about that a little bit about, about criminal justice reform? What's going on? Well, I mean, just from my experience too, like there's, there was a lot of policies that changed in California between like uh, 2011 throughout 2016. They had this thing called realignment. And um, one thing that people need to understand too is, you know, cause you know, you're hearing a lot of people from different arguments and, and saying that, you know, the, the Capitol building, you know, all these liberals wanted to free up all these you know, criminals and uh, be, be easy on crime, you know, <laughs> instead of being, being tough on crime. And that's not the case. The case was that we were violating the Constitution with uh, holding people in solitary confinement for decades. Yeah, yeah, uh, good God. That's against the Constitution. So it, it's not necessarily the fact that, like, liberals wanted to free people. It's like we, the country's run by, you know, the Constitution. And you're violating that. That's what happened. So a Supreme Court case told California prisons they had to basically decarcerate. Um, and so that kind of led to all these policy changes. One was realignment, sending people, um, you know, that, uh, in prison down to the county level, and uh, which was in some ways good. You know, it kind of took the pressure off of state prisons. But, um, but you, I mean, you guys, you know, you know, like these institutions were never made for any kind of rehabilitation. No, they don't, they weren't. And that, and you know, back when they, we first started in this country, the penitentiary system, it was supposed to be a reform uh, thing, but it's totally isn't now. It's total punishment. Yeah, yeah. You know, your history, that's, that's completely right. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, um, cause California originally was California department of corrections. Yeah. And in 2005, they added the R, you know, in the acronym rehabilitation, but it, this whole time has taken forever to actually get any kind of rehabilitative, uh, um, you know, programs within, within the institutions. But that's when, you know, prop, uh, I think it was prop 47. It, you know, made the, um, the sentences for crimes lesser, like drug crimes were considered less. You got less time also like minor property crimes. And so that was a big point of contention too. I mean, I, I hear, I hear both arguments and I understand both arguments on both sides, but specifically prop 57, that had to do with um, giving guys time off their sentence for taking rehabilitative classes and then also getting um, what they call milestone credits, which is like academic credits where you can get like an AA degree. You can get um, uh, there, there are certain academic certificates that you can work towards and you can get like up to six months off your sentence. And so that started in 2016 and that's been a big one. So, uh, and so in terms of like rehabilitation and just uh, reform, finding the people that are, that are willing to, um, you know, to take classes and get educated and, and program, you know, so they call it programming, um, is, is, and having the opportunities to do that is, has been a big one, but you know, just the bureaucracy and, and how behind everything is. And, um, you know, and then trying to use evidence-based practices and everything is tough too, because, you know, the prison that I work at, I think we just got audited and, uh, some of the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy stuff they're doing was, uh, was not adequate and it wasn't, you know, up to standards for the state. So, um, it's been, it's been a trip, man. And I think 
decriminalization of drugs has been a big one too. And that's also been, a, you know, one of my big fights, you know, in terms of like, um, what, what, uh, criminal element evolves from being able to sell drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. We got a real problem in this country with tooth, with, um, how we treat mental illness and, and addiction because, mm-hmm. uh, mentally ill and, um, and people with drug addiction end up in prison more than mm-hmm. they do getting, getting help for their, for their problem. 100%, and, yeah. and it's like, it, it just doesn't really do, do anybody any good. Yeah. And like one of the yards that I'm on right now, it's, uh, drugs are just rampant. Like, you know, I mean, I think people, you forget like that, you know, there's in the prison system, a lot of people think there's this, I, this, they have this idea of law and order and, um, it's really just an ecosystem, you know, people are just feeding off of each other. So you have lots of correctional officers that are bringing in drugs and paraphernalia, selling phones. I mean, you can make $1,500 a phone, you know? See, they pay uh, these corrections and, uh, officers almost nothing. They, they don't make very much money. Well, in, in California, some of them make six figures. Oh, are you so, shitting me? Really? Yeah. yeah oh, my God. Money. See, I grew up in a prison town. I mean, I didn't, well, I went to La- uh, high school in Lansing, Kansas, which is where the prison was. And so a lot of the kids that went to school there, their parents were prison guards. And uh, they had these little tiny houses around the prison that the prison guards guards lived in. Yeah. Later, many, many years later, when I was sober, I took uh, meetings to the uh, minimum security prison in Lansing. And yeah, it was really interesting. At that, at, and so it was actually an NA meeting. And so everybody there was for meth problems and they are mostly poor people and all, all this. And what I found really interesting about it is, okay, I would go, I'd see these guys every week and I'd go one week and a guy wasn't there. And I, and what I found out is he got busted and he got sent to the uh, maximum security prison and the maximum security prison from, from what I understood was like really hardcore where you are in your cell all day long. I think you get out for an hour mm. and yeah, they yeah. would get busted for stupid, stupid things. And it was like, it was almost like, um, I don't know what they were doing. It was like, I guys didn't understand, you know, they, they just in the wrong place at the wrong time and they got sent, get sent somewhere else. And it just seemed like, um, it just seemed kind of crazy to me. Um, it, yeah, it's totally crazy. I mean, <laughs> it, it, I mean, even in terms of like guys that have a parole date or they know that they're going home, other inmates will plant paraphernalia on them just cause just to get them busted. So they, they get, they have to stay. Like really that cutthroat. I mean, you know, obviously you you have to have like people that are, are looking to, to mess you up like that, you know, um, for whatever reason, but I mean, it happens, you know, and it, it's, it's sad um, that people get, you know, paraphernalia planted on them and that they miss their dates and stuff like that. We got a guy like like that. you said, Gabe too, it's really hard to stay out of that. It's like, you almost have to pick a side for your own safety when you're in prison. Yes. Well, and that's one of the things too, that um, really kind of struck me was, um, one of the yards that I'm on right now, this policy that started in 2018 is called uh, reintegration. And as you guys know, like in the prison system, like um, at risk or protective custody inmates have been separated from the general population for years, decades. And, um, and protective custody generally were always thought of as sex offenders, you know, rapists and child molesters and stuff. So they separated these, these uh, inmates and put them on specific kinds of yards. They changed it to call, uh, instead of protective custody, they call them SNY yards or SNY sensitive needs yards. But um, those populations, you know, weren't just sex offenders. They were ex-cops because those ex-police officers have a target on their head. Right. Um, gang dropouts is what they call them. People that owe drug debts. 
uh, gay, trans. Um, there's oh, high profile criminals too, like guys you see in the news that are like you know really high profile. They had their cases were covered in in the media a lot, and so you have this whole demographic of people that were sensitive needs, and you got to think of like you know gay and trans. Like a lot of these people were sexually abused by you know um, as kids, and so they the sensitive needs yards did nothing to stop the violence. Like in fact, some of those yards got worse than some of the general population yards. Mm-hmm. So California decided to curb that whole idea. And, um, and integrate the populations. And uh, that's what I've been seeing since um, I started teaching. And that's one of the things I've only seen it work on one yard so far. And that's one of the things I wanted to study is why it's working on this one yard. Huh. So and, integrating um, actually did work in, the, in one yard? As far as, well, it, I've heard in different states, or in different parts, uh, different institutions throughout the state, they have integrated yards that are working. They're called non-designated because you just basically, just to go there, you have to disassociate with your gang. And, um, but, uh, from what I've heard, some of the yards don't have all of the gangs that are, you know, um, in California. So, you know, you don't see all the demographics together. You see this demographic that say, cause you know, the Mexican mafia is split between, um, you know, mainly Northerners and Southerners and then Fresno Bulldogs are like right in the middle. And, um, you might have Northerners in one non-designated yard, but they don't have any Southerners who have, you know, historically been at odds with each other. And um, so, yeah, just it's a big mix of stuff, man. But it's been very interesting to see and also being able to talk to guys and be like, so, because, I mean, you know, me just, I mean, just spending time in, in, in jail, I knew what the rules were in terms of, like, if you see a child molester, if anybody has a sex offense, like, there's a green light on them. You know, you attack them, try to kill them. And, um, and so I was asking other guys that, you know, are in that, in the politics and, how and I asked them how they're able to live and and be with guys that they would you know usually you know take off on and kill and um, interestingly you know it all has to just do with rehabilitation and, and and wanting to see your family a lot of these guys have parole dates and a lot of some of the guys were like I don't care if I can't sit at your table anymore I want to see my wife and my daughter and I you know like um, I just try to pretend these guys don't exist and I don't talk to them I have nothing to do with them they are on that side of the yard I don't pay any attention to them. And, um, and that's been kind of like the sentiment I've noticed too, but it's really interesting. So it's like, you know, before I got into criminology, I was into anthropology. So studying the human species is like, is fascinating. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's also it, it, what we're living through right now with this pandemic is kind of interesting watching human behavior too, you know, where how everybody decides that toilet paper is like really valuable. Yeah. Right. And they just, yeah. And then, um, for, you know, the frantic, the, the, like, to, like um, you know, worrying about not having enough. And it's like third world countries and other places have been dealing with this. You know, this it's crazy, man. It's a trip. And just how, just how close we are from, you know, we have this dignified society, we think, and then this little thing happens and how much more primal we get so quickly. It's, it's really interesting. Gabe, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm blown away. Like, so, so you got sober in 2007. So you went to prison and you didn't, you stayed sober while you were in prison? Yeah, well, yeah, I was just in jail for months, um, so I wasn't serving like a super long time, and, and I was able to. Uh, but I got sober before I went in, and um, and I used, you know, I meditated while I was there, and uh, it was one of those things. That's that's another reason why you know I started that secular sobriety page on Facebook because um, I didn't use AA. I did find a community which I felt was important, you know, for my sobriety, and. Um, and I used, you know, Vipassana meditation where I could just, it was mainly like, you know, it, it, scanning body sensations and 
being able to objectively look at things that come at you in life um, so that you don't react to it. You stop being a reactionary, you know? Uh, and so like that helped. And then by the time I think 2011, 2012 is when I'm like, hey, there's, I feel like there's not anybody that I can relate to in terms of like, um, and you know, agnostic atheist that's sober that, um, is working other program that's doesn't include a higher power. And also just, you know, obviously you guys, I mean, you, I'm sure you're living it. Um, the idea of powerlessness versus being empowered, you know, and which is a big, I felt that was my, one of my biggest issues with being powerless and also just labeling yourself as an addict for the rest of your life. Like uh, right. that was kind of, um, I just felt like it was counterproductive, you know? So that's when I started the page and then, it, I mean, you know, it's not like a huge page. I think there's like 700 people that follow it, but, uh, I was surprised how many people are out there that want. Oh man, huge. It's huge. You know, and, and even people that might even believe in God and have a faith, they don't necessarily want it to be part of their recovery. There's some of some of that too. But, well, yeah, because even if you do like, I mean, sorry, I was just thinking, yeah, no. cause it made me think of like the idea that a God will stop you from drinking a shot of tequila and it is willing to do that, but not feed a kid in Africa. Right, right, that's right. So it's, it's 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 ridiculous. It's it's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's 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 nuts. So yeah, but because um, so we have like the secular AA group here in Kansas City, and we actually have people who go to church and so forth who prefer our meeting because they don't have to deal with the religious stuff. They don't want it part of their recovery. It doesn't have anything to do. It's like, you know, if you're going to, if you have any other medical issue or psychological issue or whatever, you don't, you don't necessarily want your religion to fix it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, right, yeah. right. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Gabe, so did you spend some time or get forced to go to some AA meetings at some point? And if so, what was your reaction? Yeah. Well, you know, when I got the DUI, they have that, they, you know, a court card that, you know, you're supposed to go to this many meetings. And so, you know, I mean, I didn't, I think I went to one maybe, but then I just forged every signature because it's anonymous. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so, right. That's right. But not many people figure that out. I, I used to tell people this is anonymous. No one's going to check. No one will know who signed this. <laughs> yeah. So I just changed my handwriting, use a pencil, use a pen, use right. a pencil, use a pen. Right, right, right. So, and, uh, but yeah, but then the, the kind of um, the self-deprecating kind of thing that was going on a lot of, I mean, at least the meeting, some of the meetings that I went to, um, and, uh, um, and, and how critical some of the people were in AA about any other program. Yes. That's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah. I would, it, it shouldn't be that way at all. I, and, and I hate that, but cause, um, from what I've read there, there really isn't one way to do it. You really have to tailor the, the approach to the person, you know, and the person might want to mix and match different, different things. That's what I'm so interested in is I, the more I learn about, you know, what's going on in the recovery community outside of 12 step programs is really fascinating to me um, because that you do see a little bit more mixing between those groups too. Yes. And like medication is always an option too, you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. the, the thing about I, the one thing that you taught, you said that Ben and I talk about a lot that we think is just the key is community. Hmm. hundred percent. Yep. Right. right. And even if it's not like a huge community, if it's just somebody you can reach out to that's older than you, that's got more time than you do. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I have to, you know, admit that I, I don't, I'm not, I never was in AA. So like when people talk about the steps and like, and they mention certain things and they, they recite it like it's scripture, you know what I mean? And it's a trip. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. They're like, you know, you don't have to just have a higher well. power. Your higher <laughs> power can be this. 
your higher pain. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, but yeah, you're, um, you're, you're much better off where you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For <laughs> sure. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. If I'm able to, you know, I, mean, I feel like I've been sober for almost 13 years. April 30th will be 13 years for me. So like, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, I've, I'm a different person. Like I've literally, I feel like I've changed the synapses in my brain to think differently, even though, you know, I mean, I still have, you know, using dreams, which is a trick. Yeah. Know? I do too yeah. still after all this time. Right. I mean, and I have these dreams where, you know, like I've, uh, I realized my dream I've been drinking the whole time and not told anybody. So I feel like my wake up, I feel like I have that one quite a bit. Really good. Good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Oh yeah. Just wake up with like this guilty feeling like I drank and didn't tell somebody or I was doing it the whole time. And I, I was convinced, convincing myself that I'd been sober, but I'd really been drinking that kind wow. of stuff. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. That's what happens. And, and it's a trip too, because in the dream, I'm like, yeah, I've been doing this and it's okay. Like, you know, it's okay because I've been only getting drunk in this section of the city or with these people. But um, yeah, but then waking up and then being relieved that that didn't actually happen. It's like the best feeling in the world. Well, you know what you've done is pretty amazing that, um, so you, you actually have had the experience of being inside the prison and now you actually have studied criminology and anthropology. And, and so you, you can bring the science and the experience to, to what you're, to, to what you're bringing to the institution. It's, it's a, it's quite, 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 quite uh, rare, I would think. Yeah. Well that, you know, it's cool. It's like, a, um, it, you know how like just prison being the ecosystem that it is and how fast sound uh, uh, news travels. You know, I mentioned smart recovery in my class like once or twice. And then I had five different, you know, inmates coming in being like, how can we get smart recovery started here? Can you help us? You know, I'm going to donate money to you now because the guys have money on the outside. You know, I'm going to have money sent to you. Can you get us these books and have them here so we can start facilitating our own smart recovery meeting? And I'm 100% supportive of that because the church comes in and, you know, um, whatever it takes. I don't care what it takes for you to get sober, obviously. But um, from what I've heard, you know, a lot of the the faith-based uh, uh, programs. I mean, they're, they're just dealing drugs while they're there, you know. And then obviously the whole idea of of you know expecting this higher power to to take this this uh, feeling out of you, you know, like it, it, a lot of the guys I think would benefit a lot from cognitive behavioral therapy because with smart recovery, it's not just alcoholism or substance use. It's it, it, you can apply it to criminal thinking too. Right, which, right. It's behavior. Sure. They really focus on behavior more than they do the addiction. Which I find really interesting. I st- I still am um, still a third of my way through my smart smart training, and I better get back on it because they have like a time limit, and I don't remember. So I need to get on there before the time runs out. But well, and you were talking too, Gabe. It's like there is such an overlap with the criminal thinking and ad- addictive thinking and whatnot. Right. I used to be a substance abuse counselor for a while too. So some mm. some people I worked with would try and separate all that out and figure out what's what, and you know, you get biases amongst counselors even where they're like, well, this guy's just a criminal, get him the hell out of here. He doesn't want treatment or right. It, especially in the matter of religion too. It's, it's amazing how many people that have just come out of prison that are looking to try and get by or very religious all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I, so often, often I think it's just said just to make you think, Hey, they're on the right path. And so you leave them alone a little bit, but that, that's maybe the cynical side of me, but also, I was going to ask, it seems like being a secular person feels like very important to you to, to make that clarification. And especially in the Latino community, that has to be a little bit more difficult, I think, because it's very highly Catholic, right? And you probably get a lot of pushback on that, I would guess. Yeah, well, um, the guys that I've talked to, they aren't so much Catholic as they're Christian now because 
Catholicism has just got so many rules to it. And, um, you know, it's kind of hard to follow certain things. Like you can't, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of the, the, the prisons have every yard's got like a multi-faith thing, you know, like a room or, and they have different, even native Americans can do, uh, you know, smoke, um, smoke retreats doing, and then, um, so there, there's options. So, but a lot of the guys that I know have gravitated from Catholicism to Christianity and, you know, it's, it's, I, I totally get it. It's like the most appealing thing in the world because when the whole world forgets about you, especially because most of the, like I have lots of guys that have murdered somebody in my classes. And, um, when the whole world has forgot about you and, you know, everybody hates you, you might not even hear from your family anymore. You always know that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he still loves you. So it's like very, 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 very comforting. And I get it. I wouldn't want to take that away from them. Um, but specifically when it comes to substance abuse too, like it's a, you know, it, it's just one of those things where it, it, they have to just start thinking in a different way. And people don't realize that hoping to put a bandaid on it with an idea is different than living your life differently. You know what I mean? Which is, I mean, you could still, I guess if, if you're, you know, following the faith of, of Jesus Christ, well, I don't think anybody really is except for the Amish. You know what I mean? Um, because it's like, he's like, you know, Jesus is like, sell everything and follow me. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So you can't really do that. I wonder if we can go into your art a little bit. I I've, I've had the privilege since I've been doing podcasts to speak with artists in recovery, but I've never spoken with the musician and I'm really interested in hearing about that part of you and the vital nonsense album, how you, what, what um, motivated you to produce that album? And if you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, you know, being a, a, like a side guy or like backing up certain artists, you know, in the music community um, and being part of so many different bands, like, you know, just as a musician, you write all, all these different parts and then you collaborate with other musicians. And so like, there's so many songs that I brought to the table, the different bands. And, um, and once I got sober and kind of distanced myself from everybody that I was, you know, with before all the bands and stuff, like I had all this music that was mine, you know, and I was like, I, I can use it because it's mine. I wrote every single part. I wrote every, I wrote the keyboard part, I wrote the bass part, I wrote the guitar part. Um, and so it was just a matter of like singing and, and working and becoming a vocalist and becoming a lead um, in that too. So um, as like a multi-instrumentalist, like I, I, I always were li- was listening to different parts, you know what I mean? And then also growing up playing all different styles of music, um, I put every kind of genre really that I like on, on this album. And when I was first putting it together and I was talking to my, uh, you know, just colleagues talking to friends that were other musicians and every song is, when you listen to it, you'll notice like everything's very different. Like every song is almost completely different style of music even. And uh, I asked my friends, I'm like, do you think I should separate it, you know, and release it separately with different genres or should I just keep it on one album? And, you know, one friend said, yeah, you should release five different aliases and this you know but obviously like this is in 2009 too like the production of making cds like nobody buys cds like physical cds you know they just use them as a it's a coaster you know and so my friends told me they're just like you're gonna waste tons of money to do that put it all on one cd just release it like that and uh, because people are gonna download one song off itunes anyways um and so that's what i decided to do and it actually ended up working out because when i do my live shows I can play whatever I want. I can play any style that I want. Um, you know, and that's generally what I do. I'll start off by playing an acoustic guitar and singing. And, you know, it's kind of like a singer songwriter kind of thing. And then, um, and then I'll start rapping. I'll put the guitar down and rap over some stuff and do go like a hip hop set. 
and then I'll grab the bass and I'll do another rap, um, and then I'll do some jazz fusion because I grew up playing like you know funk and jazz fusion stuff too, and then like instrumental stuff like real like just progressive you know muso stuff, and then um, and then I'll put the bass down and then just do metal for the end of the night you know screaming and yelling. Did you have any sort of a fear that um, when you stopped drinking that it would affect your your art? Not necessarily. Just just performing was terrifying. You know what I mean? Because it's like I literally because I started playing when I was fourteen, and I really started practicing and playing gigs. You know, when I was about fifteen or sixteen, and um, and I look back and I remember like every time I every rehearsal, most gigs, I was under the influence of something. I'd smoked weed, I drank a bunch of booze, um, and this progress. I mean, I was always like this all through my early adulthood. And then when I got, you know, and I, I mean, I even played on Saturday Night Live twice and I drank wine before I had gone up playing in front of millions of people on TV. And, uh, and then, you know, when I got sober and I played in this tiny club on a Thursday night in front of 20 people, I was terrified. I'm like, it was so bizarre because it's like I've already done all this stuff and, and now this is like freaking me out. So it took a little while to acclimate to playing live and not being drunk, you know. And now you're comfortable with it? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been so long now. It's like, it's, um, I love it, you know, and it's, and, you know, being in the entertainment industry and, and, and seeing people drunk and sloppy in front of me reminds me of where I was too, you know, so that, that kind of, it's kind of a good, good healing process, I guess. Yeah. I think that must be a myth that people um, think that their creativity, creativity comes from their drinking. And when they stop drinking, they can no longer be creative. You didn't find that. Well, you know, with, with marijuana specifically, yeah, and, and because, you know, I'd smoke weed and then just play bass for hours and hours and hours and hours, and, you know, and then um, it was almost like practicing wasn't as fun if I wasn't high, you know, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's just like different drugs will do different things, you know. Uh, I always thought I was coming up with this brilliant stuff when I was drunk, and it was, you know, when I go back and listen to recordings, I'm like, that's, that's so not good. like, <laughs> yeah, horrible. Yeah, you know, so it's a good reality check, you know what I mean, and like, uh, <clears throat> It's yeah, yeah. Wake up call. And finally, can we talk, can you talk a little bit about the documentary shadow nation? Oh yeah. Um, so George Lynch is that the guitar player that I work with. He, um, he wanted to go around the United States and document the plight of native Americans. Um, and he kind of like, he hit me up just to do this, this movie trailer. Uh, and, uh, and so I did and it ended up being perfect because I was already involved with a lot of indigenous uh, people's, you know, rights organizations, as well as the hip hop community and, and a bunch of other organizations. So it's like, it kind of just worked out. And he's just like, well, you got to just be in the band because this other bass player that I have is not, it doesn't make sense for him to do it. So I ended up recording a double album with them and we started in 2011 and um, a couple trips to Navajo nation, like in New Mexico and stuff like that and Arizona. Um, and then we took one big trip. I think it was in 2014 or 13 where we just, we went up to North Dakota, you know, and uh, went and saw Lakota Sioux. We marched with the uh, Lakota Sioux for the first official uh, Leonard Peltier day. Um, and we hit as, you know, try to hit as many different reservations as we could. And uh, we got a bunch of like high profile musicians to comment on it who are activists themselves. Tom Morello from Ray Against the Machine. He's very known to be active in you know politics and stuff. And, and, you know, uh, an advocate for the native American cause. And then a Serge Tankian from a band called system of the down. Um, he's been really big on, uh, the Armenian genocide. He's Armenian. So Armenian genocide is one of his things. So we got him, we got Noam Chomsky, um, John Trudell from, uh, 
uh, the American Indian movement who, you know, passed away, rest in peace. And, um, and so we had, we had a lot of hard hitters to interview and we went to Alcatraz Island as well. Cause there's a whole history of natives taking over Alcatraz in the sixties. Uh, and so, yeah, it took a long time. I mean, it's a lot of money and, you know, um, and hearing really horrible stories and seeing, you know, really kind of like how, third world America that people don't see. You know? Oh, people I know. Uh, the poverty uh, on, on uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation is like totally third world, totally third world. And um, the alcoholism problem is unlike anything I can even imagine. Um, and I, I, I wonder what, what can be done to help? What, 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 what's the solution? Is there... <laughs> Well, White Clay specifically, they were able to. White Clay is the city that was outside. It's not even a city; it's like a strip of land, right? In Nebraska, where they had all the bar, all, all the liquor stores. Yeah, and they didn't even serve hard alcohol; they just served beer. And like, you know, it, the population of White Clay was like literally. I'm not even. It was under ten. Yeah, and they, and they sold millions and millions of dollars of, yep. of beer. I see. That's what I read the, that article about the White Clay. Yeah. Um, but luckily, the Lakota Sioux um, or the Pine Ridge Reservation were, were able to get that whole, uh, that whole bar and all the people that own that. They had them moved far away, someplace else, in the city. I mean, not lot, not far, far away, but far enough where it wasn't going to be affecting the reservation as much as it had been. Um, the, bad, the bad side of all that is they they get all the problems associated with the alcoholism, but none of the you know like say I'm not advocating for right. this, but say they were selling the alcohol on the reservation, they would at least have the funds to maybe build treatment centers or things mm-hmm. like that. So the problem is they're just getting all the downside on the reservation. Yeah, nobody's making any money. That's actually a part of the Pine Ridge Reservation, right? Um, and so like uh, yeah, they were able to move the the, the bars and the, the owners. Cause you know, it was like, they were using guerrilla tactics, you know, every time a beer truck would show up, they were like harassing the heck out of them. And, uh, and so, I mean, apparently it worked. And, and as far as I know that they, they've, um, they resolved that issue specifically. I'm sure alcoholism is still a big part of it. I mean, I think it was like something like 30% of the kids born on that reservation had fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really bad. So it's, uh, it, it, and that's just, that's just one example too. You know, there's lots of other, you know, places. And in fact, like, um, I'm really sad to say that, you know, the, the, the band member, the lead singer of shadow, uh, train, which was the name of the band. Cause we, with this album, I mean, with this uh, documentary, we released a double album with the music. And, um, so in the documentary, it's the whole band traveling around and, um, the lead singer, Greg and I, he, he passed away, uh, in like 2016, I think it was, um, and it was, you know, largely due to alcoholism. So it was one of those things that, uh, um, uh, it was just a super tragic ending. And, um, you know, but I mean, positive is that good music came out of it and uh, hopefully people look at it and learn something, you know, and, uh, and understand, you know, just, just what, you know, the United States has done in terms of breaking treaties and, and, uh, kind of pushing people to the outskirts and yeah. trying to forget that they exist, you know? Yeah. I just kind of interested in, um, I've got a couple of books. I still haven't read them about uh, the um, recovery movement among native Americans because um, I, I talked, I talked to somebody, they have a, they have a uh, native American uh, general service office for an, an AA. So you have these native Americans who are in AA and I reached out to them because I wanted to talk to them about their recovery and what they're all about but they didn't want to come talk to me because I'm an atheist and their spirituality is really important to them. 
And I thought, well, man, that's not going to be a problem. I, I'm still interested. And I, and I asked them, I said, what's the biggest problem um, with Native Americans and AA? And he said that it's the perception that it's a white man's uh, program. Okay, I got it. Is, is the problem. So they don't necessarily have a problem with going to the meetings per se, but the problem is that it's a white man's um, program. Solution. Yeah. To, and probably also the fact that they, you know, I mean, the, the fire water, you know what I mean? Like that, that you know, Europeans brought alcohol to, I don't know how accurate that is in terms of, um, you know, I know beer, for example, has been it's dated back, you know, thousands of years. And I think, you know what I mean? Like shaman monks used to brew beer and stuff, but uh, I think that might be another issue is the fact that maybe they consider, um, alcohol being part of the problem from the Europeans in the first place. And then, you know, right. but I mean, I, I can, I can understand too, that they might have an issue with, uh, AA also because of the religious component, you know what I mean? Because right. to them, like, you know, I mean, ch- you know, Europeans would go into church in the building and, and worship a God. And for native Americans, like nature is God, nature is all, you know what I mean? And rather than, uh, um, and then having to like subscribe to this higher power, as opposed to just being part of all nature, I, I, that might be an issue too. I, yeah. I don't know. It's really a complex, complex situation. And, and I, and also as I was reading like the history of Pine Ridge and, and, and what happened is like, okay, so the, the, the United States took away all, took away all their land. They put them on this, on this little reservation, but the United States said that they would pay them billions of dollars or millions of dollars, but they will not take it because it's their land. They, the, all of the Dakotas, I guess, is their land. And um, so they're living in poverty to this day. Something's got to be done. It's just wrong, the, the the way the whole thing historically has played out. And then the problems that they have today is just, I just wish that, I just wish that there could be a little bit more compassion in this country for our, for our history. Cause that, that wouldn't be so difficult to, to make an amends for, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and the people are suffering worse than anything. You know, it's just, it's, it's something that our country should really be ashamed of, in my opinion. It just bothers me. You no, know? definitely. Definitely. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs too, is, is there's lots of corruption in that as well. Um, you know, so it's like, it, it, I feel really bad for the people that, you know, are living in poverty and they can't trust, you know, their own people like the Bureau of Indian Affairs to allocate money to resources that need to be, you know, uh, which is another whole issue, you know, and it's just yeah, terrible. It was interesting in regards to all this pandemic. I was talking to someone the other day and they were talking, you know, the poor, the people who are poor and, you know, homeless and all this, they're really going to get hit by this. And I'm like, yeah, just like every other day of the year, you know, mm-hmm. with everything else, welcome, welcome to reality of thinking about that, you know? Oh Yeah. I mean, every, it's, it's, you know, it's a catastrophic domino effect. I mean, I'm a musician and all my gigs have been canceled. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, and so that's, you know, cause obviously I get it. You can't bring a lot of people into in a small area and uh, being an entertainer. That means like you're supposed to be in front of people entertaining and you can't do that. So it's, um, it's a trip. We'll see what happens. I mean, I'm, I'm okay right now, but, um, yeah. you know, depending on how long it's last, it's a trip. I hope I hope not long. Gabe, yeah. the, the counselor in me would love to know. You said you grew up in an alcoholic home. How 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 dad's alcoholism resolve itself, or how how did his life go, and how that affect you? And how's your relationship with your family now since you've been sober? Well, um, that's thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, my everything's you know been great with my family. They've always been really supportive. You know, they visited me when I was in jail. 
Um, a lot of them really didn't even know the extent of, of what I was doing, you know, how much I was drinking and what drugs I was using, my mom specifically, you know. Um, and then my dad, you know, I was always trying to help him get sober. Um, in 2014, I got a call from the emergency room that he was found outside of his house, face down in a pool of his own blood because he had gotten so drunk he passed out again in front of his house. And um, he had, you know, once he got divorced from my mom, he got remarried again. He got another divorce with that wife. So he had like two failed marriages. And to him, it was just like, it was pretty much like a downward spiral. He, uh, he also had a cataract issue, you know, he couldn't see. So I took him to kind of resolve that. Um, and then once he could see it was better, he was better, but he just kind of used that opportunity to find other ways to kind of start drinking. And, um, he was planning to move to Mexico. Um, cause you know, it's for Sam, that's where our family's from. And, um, and so he went, my, my aunt passed away in 2015 and he went to go mourn her, um, with his family and then he died. Mm. So he actually had a heart attack and, uh, you know, he was, he was really overweight and he was, he was a, a very, extremely, extremely high blood pressure. And so from what I understand, he stopped taking his blood pressure medication, he started drinking coffee and then he kept, he started drinking again pretty heavily while he was down there. And then he just got up in the morning, had a heart attack and was out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, you know, I had moments where I was, you know, like, uh, um, pretty hopeful that he might be able to get better. Um, I was trying to be the example, you know, to him that, you know, we could, we could break the cycle, you know what I mean? And he could have something to look forward to, but, uh, yeah, it just didn't work out. And he, uh, but then, I mean, you know, I, I had, I didn't, there was no ill will towards him at all. And, uh, you know, I talked to him on the phone like a couple of days before he passed and he was, um, you know, he knew I loved him. I told him I was proud of him regardless of anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we, you know, at least settled it like that, but it was rough. That was like one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with in my life is passing my dad, you know? I bet. Yeah. Ben, ben has a similar, um, background with his father. Yeah, yeah. My dad was an alcoholic too. And you said something earlier that like you were kind of just thrown into being an adult because your dad wasn't the adult. So I was wondering too, I kind of found this for myself. Like I think some of my drinking was to relieve this sense of seriousness or feeling mm-hmm. like I always had to be the adult so I could actually cut loose and, and have my own life and have my own fun because I was, I probably wasn't able to do that when I was younger because I, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was definitely a part of it. I think for me specifically too, when I look back on it, I realized it later, you know, um, when my dad got drunk, he was an, he was an asshole, you know, and, um, and he also scared me a lot when I was a kid, you know, when he was drunk, he was just a completely different person. So, um, I was very, very, very against alcohol through my junior, uh, my junior high school. And then once I moved in with him, it was kind of like, if you can't beat him, join him kind of thing. Right. And, um, and then I realized that, you know, like when I was drinking and I was drunk, I wasn't scared of him anymore. That fear of him, he didn't seem, he was like way less, you know, uh, 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 he just didn't look like the monster that I remember him as a kid, you know? And then also I wanted to out drink him. I wanted to try to out drink him to prove that you didn't have to be an asshole when you got drunk. Um, and so like I went out of my way to just try to like out drink him and, you know, he'd be passed out and, you know, I try to get him back up. Let's keep drinking, you know, like even in the morning when he was all hung over, you know, I try to get him back up. Let's keep drinking, you know, like just kind of egging him on and being an asshole and then throwing parties at the house all the time, having people over drinking till like three or four in the morning on days he had to work. And then he'd come to, you know, yell at me about that. And I just be like, you know, you're really going to come at me about this. You know, like you've been drunk my, all right. my childhood. So, um, it was really, 
we were butting heads and it was an aggressive thing. And I was, I was unfair and mean and, you know, uh, um, totally unnecessary. You know, obviously now I look back on it as an adult, you know, but um, that was definitely part of it. You know, But I would imagine that also set you up to always have a very conflicted feeling about your own drinking on some level too. Yeah. I mean, I felt like it was okay. And I felt like, uh, you know, it was just growing up was just part of life, you know, because I mean, not ever, I don't want to just generalize Mexicans, you know, but it's like when you have the family over and like specifically we had family friends that would come over and they'd always bring a bottle of tequila and it would literally end up everybody passed out, like sprawled out around the house. And that was just kind of like the vibe. Like that's like, that's like what we did, you know, and mm-hmm. growing up all through high school. And it's like, yeah, when, you know, the compadres are coming over, we're going to bring drink tequila and everybody's going to get trashed and pass out all over the house. And I was like, being blackout drunk was like part of, you know, being a, being a adolescent, I guess, you know, like, so kudos to you, Gabe, because all those things you're saying, those are all extra obstacles for somebody to get sober, to have to pull away from all that conditioning and all that, you know, what you've been accustomed to. So great for you, man. Thank you so much. You're bringing a lot of beauty and, uh, positivity into the world. Thank uh, you guys. Thank you, uh, Gabe for that. I really appreciate it. And as I said, I'm, I'm, uh, tonight I'm going to listen to your album and then uh, later this week, I'm going to, um, watch that documentary as well. So cool. that's another episode of beyond belief sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.